It's widely argued that there's growing wealth disparity across the globe and even in the U.S. Sometimes this is seen just in, in movies like the, the one that came out la last year, Crazy Rich Asians, which was citing, it was a ro romantic comedy, but it was basically set against the backdrop of incredible opulent wealth in Singapore. Estates and parties and cars and things that the average person can't afford. There's a growing population of youth who are children of oligarchs, teenagers and adults, young adults, who like to flaunt their wealth on social media. One tag is rich Russian kids with videos and pictures of the wealthiest of the wealthy of Russian oligarchs' children in cars and yachts, flying around in planes, doing the sorts of things that the average person can't do in order to say, I can do it and you can't. One video shows four teenagers driving through the streets of St. Petersburg in Russia, tossing out the equivalent of $100 bills, laughing that they could just toss them out for the poor, the average, the not them. And of course, a recent study suggested that the numbers are astronomical between the poorest and the richest. The 26 richest people in the world, the 26 richest people in the world have more combined wealth than the bottom half of the world. 26 people have more wealth than 3.8 billion people. The extremely wealthy are disconnected from the lives of the average working person, let alone the struggles of the completely poor. The question in an area like this is, are we also disconnected? Credit Suisse came out with a study last year that said, to be in the top 1% globally, you need to make more than $33,000 a year. To be in the top 1% globally, you need to have an income of more than $33,000 a year. Now, of course, the U.S. is extremely wealthy on a kind of, you know, whole scale. To be in the top 10%, of earners in the U.S., you need to make more than 118000 Most of us would look around and say, look, we're not crazy rich. We're not tossing out $100 bills. I'd be chasing after them, right? But do we live disconnected from the day-to-day -day hopelessness of people in extreme poverty, even here in the U.S.? I was recently and am still in the process of reading and listening to the book Evicted. Evicted was written by Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmonds. As he took a look at poverty in the U.S., the book came out in 2016. It chronicles eight poor families in Milwaukee. Between 2008 and 2009, he lived in a trailer park and recorded the lives of eight separate families and how they struggled to keep a roof over their heads, specifically looking at the problem of housing insecurity. He spent time chronicling the, the lives of people in poor black urban ghettos and the lives of those in poor white trailer parks. What he suggested in his book after studying this was that rent laws generally favor landlords and evictions are actually more and more common now than they ever have been in the past. And evictions spread poverty. The way that he described it is based on several studies and his own observations were this. If you find a poor neighborhood that has stable housing population, they have lower crime 
and higher levels of living. Meaning, they could be poor, but people aren't moving in and out, which meant there's relational fabric and network. So the policing of the streets is actually done more by grandmothers and siblings and aunts and uncles than it is by the police. And when the people have lived there long term, it creates a stability that says, no, this is our neighborhood, we want to keep it safe. We want the kids to make it to school. We want to work hard and have this place. This is our place. But as people move in and out of a given neighborhood, it creates instability. The social and relational fabric is broken. And while he suggests, yes, there's a lot of things, education and jobs and crime reduction and keeping families together and fighting systemic racism, all these different things, and different political parties will point to different ones. He said the impact of housing insecurity, of constant evictions, is destabilizing and creating chronic poverty. He said, citing this idea, one eviction destabilizes two neighborhoods. It destabilizes the one out of which the person is being kicked out because their relational connections are no longer there, and it destabilizes the one they move into because now a stranger is there. People don't trust a stranger. They're not gonna invite a stranger over. If a stranger is struggling economically, they're not gonna support them. One of his summary statements is this, evictions fallout is severe. Losing a home sends families to shelters, Abandoned houses and the streets, it invites depression and illness, compels families to move into degrading housing in dangerous neighborhoods, uproots communities, and harms children. Eviction reveals people's vulnerability and desperation. We have failed to fully appreciate how deeply housing is implicated in the creation of poverty. Go watch Crazy Rich Asians, go listen to or read Evicted, you can see the extremes, the challenges of connecting the two, of our own lives being connected to those who struggle to make ends meet. Is there a better way? What is God's heart for all people and his creation when it comes to wealth and poverty? We are in the middle of a series that is the biblical theology of poverty and wealth, understanding God's heart for our possessions. This morning, we're looking at the law. Last week, we looked at creation and Genesis. This week, we're looking at the law. We don't often do that, but let's, let's, we're going to dive in a little bit. I had us read a bunch of different sections of it. So the law or the law of Moses, what is the law of Moses? The law of Moses is what Moses receives on Mount Sinai. Israel has been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're going to possess the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God gives them his law, his covenant, his promises to them and the stipulations that are put on them. The law of Moses is often divided by theologians and biblical studies peoples into the moral, civil, and ceremonial law. The moral law is basically the Ten Commandments. Do not commit murder, do not steal, the sort of things that predates the law. That moral law is on every culture at all times. But added on to that in the law of Moses, we get the civil law, which was basically the way Israel was to govern itself when they entered the promised land. This included the way that justice was to be carried out, the way that things were protected in property and for the poor, the, the governmental systems and justice of the country. 
And then there's the ceremonial law, which is basically the way that you approached God in the temple or the tabernacle, sacrificing animals in order to worship God, to have your sins forgiven, to approach the Lord. The moral, the civil, and the ceremonial were all a part of it. But ultimately, it was God's covenant with Israel, saying, you are my people, and I want you to be a light to the nations. When you live out this moral, civil, and ceremonial law, you will be revealing my heart to the world, and they will come to know me. Now, many Christians will tell you, and this is, I I agree with them, that much of the law of Moses has been pushed aside because of Jesus Christ. That whole law was pointing to Jesus and his death on the cross, He comes as our new prophet, priest, and king. And so in some ways, there's parts of the law that are not applicable anymore. The ceremonial law, which says you need to sacrifice a lamb to have your sins forgiven, has been done away with. Jesus was crucified for your sins to be forgiven. We do not need an animal to access God. The civil law has also been essentially done away with because we are not the nation of Israel. And God called his people to be the church, which crosses nations, living out his purposes as they follow the spirit, not the law. But the law is still relevant primarily in this way, not just in the moral law of murder and theft and adultery being wrong as they always have been, but The law is God's word, and God's word reveals God's heart. And so if we want to understand what God desires of our wealth and resources, what God desires and has a heart for the poor or creation itself, we can look to the law because in it we see God's heart. So what does the law say about wealth? Well, the law says that wealth is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. As Israel is entering the promised land, God says, I will give you a land. And you have to remember, we carry our money in credit cards or in cash, so these paper pieces or this electronic bank account. But to the people back then, land was their wealth. So the Lord promises them a promised land, and when they enter, the land is divided for the people. If you can go and read about the division, the Israel was divided into 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, and they each got a portion of the land. And that portion that was given to each tribe, Judah or Benjamin, uh, was divided then again into clans, and every clan divided it into the families until each family had a portion of land. So when Israel takes over the land, everyone started out at the same place. Maybe their land was a little better, a little bit worse, but everyone started with something, something to build off of. And private property was protected. There was rule of law, making sure that you, even if you were powerful or socially high, could not steal the land of somebody poorer or weaker. And prosperity was actually promised in that original law. God saw the land and the wealth that they could earn from working hard on that land and serving him as his blessing. Leviticus 26, verses 3 and 4 lays it out. If if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give. If you walk, then I will give. I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. I don't 
think that this is applicable directly to us today. If you obey God, you will be prosperous. But what we can discern from this is that prosperity is not an evil thing. God's desire is that his people should prosper, but his desire is that all people should as well. And prosperity is not an end game. We see that in the Sabbath. The Sabbath was this weekly process of stopping from work, of resting, right? You were supposed to rest from your work, and your land was supposed to rest from your work, and your animals were supposed to rest from their work, and any laborers or servants were supposed to rest from their work. That every week built-in rest was absolutely transformative. No other culture did it. Why did they rest on the seventh day? Well, one, it was obviously to worship God. It wasn't just to rest to do whatever you want. It was a rest to worship God, to recognize everything I have is God's. My future is not dependent on me. It's dependent on God. I'm stopping to worship him. It was also to reveal God to the nations. God who created all things in six days and rested on the seventh, and his people work and then rest on the seventh, revealing God to the nations who didn't practice this same thing. And it was an anticipation of heaven. As they rested, they were anticipating their eternal rest, which is talked about several times in the New Testament. But one of the things that's often not mentioned with the Sabbath was how implicitly built into the Sabbath was a constraint on how much money and wealth you could extract from your land. You can extract as much as you can in six days, but on the seventh day, your land stops your animals stop. The workers and servants who work for you stop, and you stop. Profit is not the only thing. God, with this law and the wealth, says he provides a land for Israel and promises his blessing and their abundance and peace. But he also inscribes into it Sabbath rest, reorienting the people every week towards God in this weekly ritual of stopping from labor, stopping from production in order to point themselves to God and away from self-reliance. The Sabbath was saying, your future and your well-being is in God's hands, not yours. Wealth is a good thing, but it's not the only thing, according to God's law. And God continually pushes the people of Israel towards generosity and giving. And some of this is built into the law itself with things like the tithe. Now, if you don't know what tithes are, you come from a church tradition that doesn't emphasize it. Let me explain it to you, because some of you come from a church tradition, you've heard it your whole, your whole life. A tithe is one-tenth of all that you brought in. And in the Bible, it says, give a tenth to the Lord, okay? And so many people have been in traditions where it said, look, you've got to give one-tenth of all that you make to the church or to the mission of the church, to the poor. And I'm here to tell you no. To be obedient to the law, you don't have to give a tenth. You have to give much more. Because as several scholars have pointed out, that tithe is written about in multiple places. There's a tithe, a tenth of your, your income was supposed to go to the Levites, who are the priests, the ministers. 
A tenth was actually supposed to be for festivals of worship, and one tenth was supposed to go to the poor. Every third year, you were supposed to have a separate one that was for the poor, the sojourner, the orphan. Many scholars will point out that it was probably closer to 23% because every third year was for the poor rather than 10. You want to be biblically faithful? Don't stop at 10. 23. And the tithe was not the only thing God commanded. Offerings were also a part of what God commands. The first fruits of your harvest are supposed to be offered to the Lord, just worship. So you scoop up the first fruits of the harvest and you bring them to the priest and offer them to the Lord saying, thank you God for this abundant harvest. The firstborn male that was born to a woman, you were supposed to offer sacrifices. That's why uh, Mary and Joseph go and sacrifice uh, some doves because they were poor, but if they were rich enough, they would sacrifice a lamb because it was their firstborn son. And in fact, if you had an animal like a goat or sheep, the firstborn male that a female goat or sheep had, the firstborn male was supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord. Now we just think, okay, so they killed a sheep or a lamb, that's kind of gross, but, but that was money. That was their wealth. The firstborn was dedicated to the Lord, an offering. When you were sick, you couldn't go and worship God. You had to go through a purification process. There were multiple purification processes in the Bible, in the law, but it, every one of them involved sacrifice, offering something to God. Your main feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, all involved you and your family offering a sacrifice, a lamb, a goat. Now again, remember, that's their money, that's their wealth, that's what they have. And if you wanted to worship God, you could also offer a free will offering. Not just on one of the prescribed days, you could just go whenever you wanted because you loved God and wanted to offer him a sacrifice. Every one of those sacrifices was incredibly costly. Even in today's terms where you could actually probably buy a whole lamb for a couple of hundred dollars if you wanted to cook one. And that's in a day and age when food costs are completely low compared to our cost of living. Every time you want to worship God, it's $1,000. And that's part of God's command. How much did the law require? It was significantly more than 10%. It was well north of 20% that the average person, if they were following the law, were going to be giving to the work of the Lord, to worship the Lord, to the poor, handing it over, saying, it's not mine, it's yours. And a huge portion of what God is doing in this is causing the people to trust him and not their wealth and to have a heart and mind towards the poor. So wealth, giving, and the poor. Specifically within the poor, you have that cycle of Sabbaths. Every seven days, they got a rest from their labors. But not only that, there was this Sabbath year, which we didn't read about, and this one isn't often talked about, but instead of every seven days you had a day of rest, every seventh year you were supposed to have a Sabbath where the land was supposed to rest the entire year. And you were supposed to release people from debts. So the reason why somebody would be an indentured servant is because they, they fell into misfortune. Poor health, something happened to them. They had to sell their, their property and they all essentially had to become an indentured servant to somebody else working for them until their debts were paid off. 
Every seventh year, all debts were to be released, forgiven, set free from the debts that you owe. Every seventh year, if Israel was following God's law. Think about that in relation to student loans, car payments, credit card debt, even your mortgage. Every seventh year, all your debts released. And on top of that, every 50th year was the year of jubilee. There was rest for the land, rest for workers. There was a release from all your debts, and there was a restoration of lands to the original owners. Any purchase of land was temporary. So again, think about it this way. My family runs into misfortune, and I have to become an indentured servant and sell my land. It's now no longer in my family's name. Every seventh year, I would be released from my debts that I owed. And every 50th year, the lands that I had to sell 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, would be restored to me or my children. It was rest, it was release from debts, and it was a restoration of lands, which meant debt was not perpetual. Poverty could not have been chronic and intergenerational nor could wealth have been accumulated continually at the expense of others. This was an absolute stopgap, restoring families to a common start every 50th year. Every 50th year, we all start over. At least once in your lifetime, you or your family will start over, all on equal footing. One Old Testament scholar, Richard Hess, wrote, Freedom from crushing debt and the return of land, the basic source of wealth, provided a form of social justice built into the economic system that will guarantee most people a fair opportunity in life. God gave them the land, but he was saying, I want you to trust and worship me. Every seventh year, release people from their debts. Every 50th year, restore their lands to them. As it says in Leviticus 25, 23, because it's not yours. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. When it came to the poor, God provided for their release, for their restoration, and for their redemption. Multiple times in the Old Testament, in that law, it says that there's, if you have a close relative, a family member who goes into debt, it's your job to buy out their, their debt. It's your job to buy their lands back if you can. You were to serve as their kinsman redeemer, their next of kin who can pay off their debts to buy back their land. It was a social contract built into extended families to care for one another, to provide for one another. And God said, this is an obligation on you to provide for and care for one another, for your brothers and sisters. And ultimately, that was the way God wanted them to, re- to, to look at the poor in their land on the basis of relationship. Again and again, it says the vulnerable and the poor are your brother and your sister and your neighbor. One of the laws for the poor was that if you had a field, you couldn't glean, you couldn't harvest the corners of your field, which basically meant you were supposed to leave a portion of it for the poor, the sojourner, the orphan, in order for them to then come into the field and just take enough to eat. This this happens in the book of Ruth. But if you think about it, that's because the people live near you. 
The people near you, your neighbors who are poor, you're supposed to allow for them to eat, leaving the corners of your fields unharvested so that they can glean from it. And ultimately, God is commanding his people to see any poor not as them, not as people who have problems, not as the other, but as your brother and sister, your neighbor. And he commands in Deuteronomy 15, 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Open wide. To open wide is to say, what do you need? Take it. If not, here. I'll give you what I'm going to give you. God's commandment is to open wide. God builds into his law his preferential concern for the poor through tithes and redemption, things like gleaning and the cycle of Sabbaths that gave rest and release and redemption and restoration. Patrick Miller, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, wrote, every seven days, every seven years, every 50th year, time that has brought bondage, weariness, debt, poverty, and landlessness is to stop. There is to be a break and liberty. They, the poor, all people, start afresh and refreshed. The law of God, the law of Moses, gave hope to the poor, providing a way out of misfortune and protection against crushing and systemic poverty. If we were to sum all of what we see in the law, and we didn't go deep into it, we would see that resources and property and work and prosperity are actually good things. Rain and abundance are good things. Having, having food and house are good things. But the law also puts limits on extreme wealth and its perpetual accumulation through things like the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. And it puts protections against crushing and perpetual poverty. You will not remain down forever. God is concerned, according to the law, for the needs of all people and the care of all creation. And his people and his people's wealth is a primary way he cares for the needy. So does this apply to us today? Well, again, a reiteration of a couple of things that don't apply. No, America is not the kingdom of Israel. And no, the Constitution is not the law of Moses. But God is still God. Everything, everything is still his. And we are his people. In some way, God's word, God's desires must have an effect. When we look at God's word, God's heart, God's law, and God's desires regarding poverty and wealth, we should be asking, does this shape my view of my wealth and of the poor? What does God want for my resources? In order to continue this conversation, I'm going to invite Melissa Russell up. M Melissa, oh, there you are. Come on up here. <laughs> um, Melissa is, I'm going to give you a microphone here. Um, pop over to the side here. Melissa is the Chief Advancement Officer at IJM. She's also been worshiping here along with her husband and, and kids for a number of years. Mm -hmm. But 
International Justice Mission is one of our mission partners that we support, and they do work in anti-trafficking around the globe. They work to free people from brothels and slavery and protect people whose land has been grabbed unfairly, um, fighting for the poorest of the poor around the globe. But you work specifically as the chief advancement officer. Tell us what that involves. What does your work involve specifically? Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, as the chief advancement officer for IJM, there's a component of my work, which is all of our communications globally, uh, certainly marketing, but as it pertains especially to this, it's a, like a chief revenue officer. So all of the funds that come in from individuals or governments or corporations is led by the uh, Global Advancement Division. And IJM has continued to grow in the work that they're doing as well as in the resources that they're bringing in, or mm -hmm. in order to do that work. Uh, some of that is communication, getting that out. Mm -hmm. Some of that is just gathering people who see that this is a, a necessary cause to, to give money to. Um, a couple of months ago, you shared with me and a few others about um, how at IJM, you went through a process, not you personally, but mm -hmm. you as a leadership went through a process in order to get yourselves aligned in your theology of generosity. Yep. So what did you all do? What were your conclusions, and how did your conclusions affect the sort of work that you guys do at IJM? Well, so I, I grew up in the Deep South. I think I've perhaps shared this before, and there are a few things... Um, that are more awkward to talk about than money. So uh, you certainly, it's just rude to talk about money and you, it's really hard to ask for help. So to become a fundraiser, which is to ask people for help by talking about money is a, uh, anyway, it's a funny thing. <laughs> so I just want you to know, like if there's anyone in the world who ever could have felt more awkward about it. But so in leading, in leading fundraisers, uh, and I had actually done fundraising before for the University of Texas for five years. And so in leading them and trying to set up what, like, how are we going to measure success as fundraisers? What does that look like? What does that look like as a Christian organization? About 10 years ago, went through the process of saying, well, first we need to look at what does the Bible say about money? Because that should then inform how you actually invite people to give money. And Johnny, you actually covered so many of the points um, in, in looking at scripture, which is uh, in your sermon last week, but really everything in the world belongs to God. You know, everything in the world is God's, the castle, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. And so, therefore, there's no scarcity of resources in God's kingdom. And that was really the first, like, God deals in a kingdom that takes fish and loaves and feeds 5,000. And so, if there's no scarcity of resources truly in God's kingdom, uh, one of the implications of that, at least as a leadership team and as an as a NGO nonprofit, is uh, you can actually cheer other organizations on mm -hmm. as they are raising money. And someone else's success doesn't actually mean that there's not enough for you. And that's very freeing. Uh, you have to remind yourself of that biblical foundation. But that's actually very freeing because I love IGM's work. I started as a donor. IGM is not the only organization in the world doing really redemptive things. And so God, you know, it all belongs to God. So uh, the second thing is there's no scarcity of resources, but he does give uh, money and, and, and things to individuals as a gift. And you talked about it last week, but very much so there's something funny with money because uh, we can think about our skills and our gifts and our abilities as something to give to God. But because we work for money, it, it changes a little bit of the relationship. It, we kind of think of it more as ours. And your verse on Deuteronomy last week hits it, which is, you may say to yourself that you have uh, derived this wealth by yourself, but is it not God who gives you the skills and the gifts and the abilities? So if he gives it to you as a gift, 
uh, then, then why does he give it as a gift? And then the Bible is super clear on that as well, which is he gives it as a gift to be generous. And so um, it, I would look at that Bible verse of it's better to give than to receive is sincerely more tra- better translated is it's actually more fun to give than to receive. It's not like it's better for you in the way of like Brussels sprouts are better for you. Like it is legitimately, <laughs> it is legitimately better, uh, more fun to give and receive. And if you think about relationships or food or sex or all the wonderful things that God has invented, he, he always gives like a proper context in which to enjoy those things. And the proper context for money is generosity. And so those, like how that informs how we look at it, I would just, the final thing I would say is uh, fundraising or, or donors are not a means to the mission. It's not like the mission is over here and then here's the, here's the people who give the means for it. But really the Bible says, you know, one body, many parts. He places each part exactly where he intended to be. So the fundraising is very much is an equal part of the mission as the actually people who are doing the work in the field. And you have to look at donors uh, and supporters in that context. Otherwise, again, it's just not the biblical context. Um, I'm kind of give you one last opportunity here. There may not be, you've actually covered so many good things about what IJM does, how to look at these things, and even our own heart in that. But from your personal experience yeah. as a fundraiser, developing relationships, mm-hmm. working with donors, those sorts of things, is there anything else that you can share with us that might be helpful to our discipleship um, or our approach to wealth or giving? I mean, you already hit on some of that, but is there anything else that we can hear from your experiences working with individuals? And I have been working with individuals for almost 20 years. And so uh, just in the span from a donor who gives $50, uh, you know, a year to a donor that can give you $5 million in a year. And so I would just say, this is not going to sound probably as Jesus-y as, uh, as it could, but it's actually, I, Jesus is quite practical. I think there it all starts with also just really looking pragmatically at your finances. So, I mean, it, it like, where do you look at your retirement? Look at what you need on a monthly basis. Uh, do you have debt? Like, just be very honest about what your finances look like and then start to say, what's the biblical lens through which I could apply this and then plan from there? Because I just the number of people and I'm just throughout my history, this is I'm really talking from a first person. The like there's few things that make us more anxious. And so therefore, we don't really look at it. And then you're really unsure, like how much to give because you're like, I want to be generous, but I don't even know how much money I need in a month or I don't know actually what I'm planning towards. And it really affects. It's just too much uncertainty. So just be honest. Look at your debt. If you have debt, uh, what's the shame behind that and, and how can you work to resolve that? Uh, and, and then pragmatically, I think you can start to really uh, apply that. And it affects your generosity. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, honestly, for just giving us some of your insights into and totally. it's challenging us without actually challenging us. Um, you did a great job there. Um, I want to pray for IJM, not specifically for giving, but just for the work of IJM before you head off. And then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer as Betsy Kodak comes up to lead us. So let's pray for the work that, um, that Melissa is a part of with the International Justice Mission. God, our Father, you care about all people, and there are thousands and millions around the globe who are suffering under the slavery and whip and unable to get rule of law. Lord, we pray for their protection and their release. We pray for the work of IJM that you will continue to expand their work, strengthen them, give them favor, Lord, and give them open doors as they 
reach into places that are incredibly dark. Lord, you are the one who came to set all of us free, and we pray that you would literally set people mm -hmm. free from their slavery. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me Thanks, continue Jeff. on in prayer.